This is Carly Ahonen from Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. Hey, this is Morgan Shackleford coming at you from the OTA program at Cape Fear Community College. This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Okay, so Morgan and I would like to introduce Karen Rice, the creative director and co-owner of Arcadia Therapy Services in Arizona. She's also an OTR and she's a co-founder of Raising Hope Therapy Dogs, a nonprofit here in Arizona that aims to uh, place therapy dogs with families of those with significant need. All right. Hi, thank you for having me. Hi, Karen. This is Morgan. Hi, Morgan. I just wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about a typical work day for you. So a typical work day for me is very different than a typical work day for the therapists who work for our therapy company. So in summary, my work day often involves um, a schedule to go out with OT assistants and um, meet with families and update care plans. And if there's a cancel or a no-show, we either go out to lunch and just catch up and um, problem solve things together, or I might jump into my email and take care of a lot of details. I tend to work late into the evenings as well, working on a lot of program development things that um, I really enjoy related to the programs that I'm a part of through both Arcadia Therapy Services, our pediatric therapy company, as well as Raising Hope Dogs, um, the not-for-profit that places dogs with therapists. So my workday involves a lot of variation and I really love it. The therapists who work with our therapy company carry a caseload of between 25 to 35 kids and they just go from home to home and they bring their best skills and um, empathy to help meet the needs of kids that have a wide range of developmental challenges. All right, thank you. Um, so you spoke about Raising Hope Therapy Dogs. What exact, can you go into more detail about that organization? Yes, so Raising Hope Dogs was started um, as a project within our therapy company back in the fall of 2013, I was raising a four-pound chihuahua that was kind of kicking my butt in terms of um, she was way smarter than I was. So I looked for the best trainer that would take me seriously and take my four-pounder seriously, and I ran into Wendy Faircloth. She's a seasoned um, dog trainer, and she and I partnered together after about a year of me taking classes and learning how to manage my Chihuahua. She began to work for Arcadia and we started exploring the use of highly skilled working dogs to make an impact in therapy sessions. Typically what's out there, which is awesome as well, is um, volunteer pet therapy dogs who may not have an expansive skill set but hopefully have a good temperament for being involved with um, clients, possibly in a passive role. Our dogs, through Raising Hope Dogs, are a blend of a, a service dog, so they have the ability to do physical tasks on behalf of a client, like pushing buttons, turning on lights, um, bringing any item to 
uh, person that is requesting it. Um, so they have service dog tasks. They're also professional athletes being able to play frisbee. Some of them play fly ball, uh, relay race sport. Some of them do dock diving. So that we can bring athletics into our work with clients. And then um, also the dogs have that reliable um, therapy dog type temperament where they can go into a wide range of situations and be relied upon to be thoughtful and pleasant no matter what the conditions are. So anyway, in the fall of 2013, Wendy and I started exploring the use of these highly skilled dogs in the therapy work that we were doing with our OT assistants. And we found that it was just an incredibly powerful modality. And we were getting outcomes with kids, um, kids that um, one kid in particular, his name is, we'll call him Jack. Um, Jack, anytime he got overwhelmed in his life, he would have to put on latex gloves because he just couldn't handle touching the world and his environment. And after one session of playing with Frisco, our first working dog, and managing the spit on the toys, um, he was able to go, even just in that one session, go from needing to run to the bathroom to wash his hands to wiping his hands off on Wendy's pants to not even noticing that the spit was there. And what was, I mean, even that session was just like a jaw dropper and it, um, it changed me on behalf of that kid. But what was even more powerful, if, if less dramatic um, for me personally, but still more powerful for him, was that um, as a result of his ability, his motivation to handle stuff on his hands from playing with the dog, he was able to um, not have to wear gloves anymore within a month or two that um, you would say like limiting if not dysfunctional behavior was completely eradicated from his life and the parents directly attributed that to the, um, the intense experience that he had and his desire to interact with the dogs. So that was just one of our, probably one of our for one of maybe 10 or 15 very, very powerful sessions those first few weeks we were out in the field. And so after that point, we then realized that we were onto something and that it was a mission worth pursuing. So we've spent the last seven years just slowly and sometimes fits and starts uh, building our capacity to um, raise and place dogs with therapists nationally to work with a wide range of clients. Um, so in 2015, we realized we were ready to create a separate organization so that it could take a life of its own apart from our therapy group, and that's when Raising Hope Dogs was born. And then two years later, we were able to have it become a not-for-profit so we could kind of solidify the funding for it. And then in 2018, I was able to pass the leadership on to a very um, successful not-for-profit worker um, who is able to take it into much deeper, bigger realms than I could even imagine. So I still stay involved with that organization, um, sharing the stories of the kids, helping with some fundraising, and supporting their programming. But the majority of my focus with the dogs is utilizing the dogs um, in our therapy practice and advancing the programs that we have to help kids grow by leaps and bounds in ways that they wouldn't if they didn't have that strong desire like Jack had to interact with the dog. Well, that's really powerful and moving. 
Um, I just have to take it back a little bit and ask a pretty general question. Um, sure. As a OTA student right now, I am constantly being asked, why do you want to go into OT? So I want to ask what you, what got you into OT? Well, it was a little bit of an innocent choice between going into nursing and going into OT school. I had spent some time um, out of, it took me eight years to get a four-year degree, so I was one of those that had a hard time launching my young adulthood. So when I was in breaks from college, I would go work in a range of healthcare settings to try to narrow down my interest. And I think I just had a sense from talking with people, doing some observing, that occupational therapy is a field that has the opportunity for more creativity and more innovative thinking. Um, and so I think as a young adult, I had no idea the depth of my free-spirited nature, my entrepreneurial um, spirit, and my willingness to take risks and just do funky things that everybody else thinks is a really bad idea. So um, as it's turned out, having occupational therapy as my life work has given me that freedom to use my strengths and nurture my interests to make a really strong contribution. And I see occupational therapy as a, more of a philosophy and a way of life than even just a job or a great career. And so when I think back to that innocent decision where I almost like drew straws or flipped a coin between nursing and OT, I'm just so grateful for the people who encouraged me to try OT because it's a fit that's um, of the deepest degree and I really can't imagine being or doing anything else as a, as a contributor to society. That's awesome. I think it definitely fits you from what I've learned so far. <laughs> it does. I love the, the innovation that our profession promotes and then just all the different realms that we can work um, it's just really a powerful opportunity and I also love too that and this is one of my motivations for trying it is um, in OT you can work a little or you can work a lot and I know that in other healthcare professions there can be that flexibility as well but for example in nursing that 12-hour shift idea felt a little daunting to me because I wasn't sure that I would want to commit to, or teaching, you know, you kind of got to be in the classroom for a solid eight hours if you're going to be legit for the day. Um, so I really liked just the flexibility that I heard our profession affords where, and certainly the therapists who work for our company, if they want to take on two clients twice a week, that's great. Or if they want to do 10 clients, three days and take a four-day weekend, like whatever work that people want to do, um, in our setting at least, home care visits, it can be very personalized to meet people's um, other life goals. And so that definitely was a draw to me that I felt was somewhat unique in our setting, the ability to personalize how much or how little work we do. I feel like that definitely keeps the passion going too for yes. OT when you're not burning out uh, from working those 12-hour shifts and everything. Yeah, the clocking in and the clocking out and the having to be on for a certain period of time that's long in duration and people's lives are, you know, 
um, in your hands, so to speak. Their, their well-being is certainly something for to be responsible for. I, I just don't have that kind of attention span to be on and to not make mistakes for 12 hours straight. That just would be the pressure would would keep me from being able to do that work for very long. I would probably be one of those that could work in a setting for two to three years and then I'd have to go take a sabbatical for a year because I do think that you know, serving people in the healthcare profession is a, a high honor and a deep responsibility. And so I think it does weigh on me more than people who are naturally um, aware of their environment and on it all the time. I see people who are truly gifted in those types of jobs, and I'm glad they're there, but I'm also glad I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. You know. So, I understand that. Yeah. So yeah. what are some ways that you like to relax or maybe take care of yourself after those long days that you do? Oh, my brother was just challenging me on that today when I went over to hang out with him. I This probably is, you'll have to bleep it out of the podcast because I'm sure it's not what your professors would want to hear. But I am not like most other people in the world in that I don't have a lot of other life responsibilities. I don't have kids and I have a very tiny house. So I, I've been able to kind of set up my life to work pretty much like I'm a happy workaholic and I love to work all the time. However, like for me, one of my, I, I'm very expansive in my definition of work, right? So like one of the things that we're doing is we're having these house parties to help fundraise for the dogs. So part of my, quote, work is being able to send pictures to Costco and I get to um, put them into little storybooks and I get to um, work with a, a young friend of mine who's great at sewing and so we pick fabrics and we make bandanas as thank you gifts for the parties, you know, dog bandanas that also could be used as napkins, cloth napkins. So, like, like is that really work? No, it really isn't. Like, most of, I would say, 60% of what I do really doesn't fit under the category of work, but because, like, as people traditionally see it, but because I am so singular focused in my life, I just make sure that everything I love to do kind of fits under the category of advancing our therapy company and advancing the dogs. So like what I'm getting ready to go do next week is go, quote, work in California where I get to hang out with 11 dogs and do nothing but just watch the dogs and read and sleep and watch the dogs and read and sleep. So is that really work? Not really, but kind of, you know, so that's how, that's a long way around answering your question. I just have probably 15 different types of work that I do, and I just mix and match it to agree with what energy I have and what I feel like doing in the moment. I think that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> they don't teach us that. They're like, you need an occupational balance. but I, I've not found, I'm kind of one of those that, again, I do things people think are not very smart a lot of the time. But, like, to me, I'm one of those people that, like, I'll be 75, 80 years old and begging people to still let me work with them. And they'll be like, God, we got to find some sort of corner of this effort to give to Karen so she'll stop bugging all of us, you know, and and I'll just 
it will be difficult for me to stop my definition of working because it's just such a powerful, cool thing. I do a lot of, um, especially before we started the dog program, and I have puppies in my life all the time, but before that, I would read for two to three hours a day, um, going to sleep at night, um, and I was always reading business development books, which I always felt a little guilty about that I wasn't reading neuro books um, because I felt like if I really was going to be a serious clinician, I should be reading um, books, clinically based books. But I just, over time, came to accept the fact that I'm not, I'm never going to be an amazing clinician. Hopefully, I'll have some wisdom to share from hanging out with all the CODAs and the other therapists that we hire that I dearly love. I learn stuff from them. But at the end of the day, the, the unique contribution that I think I'm meant to make is to be a visionary and um, blaze trails in, in realms that haven't been um, developed in the past by others. And so all those years of um, all the business books that I read, I'm still not really a business person. I don't think like a business person. I don't make money like a good business person. But I have that appreciation of building a vision and imparting um, hope and commitment to people within a, within a project or a program or an effort. So that was a really cool phase in my life, which I, I think, you know, reading an, a three-dimensional book from start to finish is a bit of a lost art, and that is something I encourage um, new grads to think about or even students. It's like, yeah, you read now because you have to. Give yourself a year or two or three after you graduate to stop reading. But then find those topics that fascinate you and motivate you and, and commit to finding that time to read, um, even if it's just, you know, breaks on your holiday or whatever. Like my main time that I read now is we go to Virginia um, for an early Christmas every year and the house we go to like has no dogs and it's very clean and very tidy. And I just probably read like 12 hours a day when I'm there. Um, and so I... I find those times to still continue that practice of purposeful learning. And I don't think it has to matter what your subject area is. I think you just need to be passionate and commit to continually learning. There's something very special about a book that is published. It's more refined than what you would find reading articles online. Except, of course, the research articles. That's the highest level of effort, I think, if you're reporting on a research project that you've spent 10 years doing. But in general, most of what's online is not as refined as a published book. So, I think that's, they always tell us to be lifelong learners. So I feel like that's what comes with it, wanting to read and really get to know about the rest of what the rest of the world's doing and not just like staying in our bubbles, you know. Yeah, and as an OT, I guess that's why I love our profession is, you know, I, I have to accept the fact that a lot of times students will come and I'll be like, okay, all of our other um, clinicians, you know, are a little tied up so you'll spend more time with me. And they're like, oh, that's great. But then they go back to their professors and say, I didn't really see OT. And I'm always like, that hurts me. That hurts me. But it's true. I get what they're saying. Um, on one hand, like, as a student, you absolutely need to get clinical competence. And I needed that in my field works as well. But I do think it's kind of cool when people 
see what I do and they have to think about the fact like is she functioning as an OT and I'm like everything I do I do as an OT whether I'm sewing a bandana or whether I'm talking to my brother and helping him think through his life like it's a state of being as much as it is you know treating a kid or helping um, a stroke patient get to the bathroom like yes that is a part of what we do and it's what we get paid for but OT can be perceived in a much broader deeper sense so that even when I was reading all my business books I still was reading them as an OT yeah absolutely so as um, a future CODA I was just curious more about you have spoke a lot about taking the therapy dogs and being with the CODAs and I'm just curious about their relationship and interaction and how they do therapy sessions with the dogs. So yeah, what's really fun about our setting um, and Arizona in particular is our supervision requirements between an OTR and a CODA um, diminish over the years of someone having experience in a particular practice setting. So in the beginning there's a lot more interaction, a lot of more support that then by the time we get through two years partnered with CODAs then um, it's just an, a monthly meeting and connection. So our CODAs um, hopefully feel a ton of support and nurturing from myself and other people in, the, in, our, in our therapy group um, but I make sure that our supervising OT partners actually write the progress reports in the home so that the CODAs aren't having to do that and then it gives the OTRs a unique contribution that we get to be up close in designing the care plans and upgrading them and, and revising them to meet the family's most current needs. So outside of those progress report visits and being available for anything that's needed, um, the CODAs have a lot of autonomy to be out there and implementing the care plans and so the CODA that we have right now who has a working dog she um, he's actually a Chihuini he's a Chihuahua dog and about, about 20, 20 pounds maybe and so he fits really nicely in her car and she has a carrier that she will bring into the homes that need it so Rebel can take a break if she gets busy working on a a skill that doesn't require the dog directly. So I established the goal of let's say the mom's like I really need him to brush his teeth, he's not letting me get inside his mouth. So I write the goal that um, Nicole and, and the child will um, work on brushing up and down and back and forth and tolerate mom working it after he's practiced or whatever. So whether how Nicole implements that goal is really up to her. So Rebel doesn't even necessarily make the care plans because he's a modality that she has the training and the autonomy to decide if she wants to use that or if she wants to use a, a, a model of teeth you know from the dentist or if she wants to do the brush up app on her iPad or if she wants the kid to brush the mom's teeth like she gets to decide how she implements that goal and so she really has been out on her own the last couple months after it was about a six month process where I was in the homes a lot with her getting her oriented to using the dog um, but once the dog was 
placed with her and she was kind of checked, checked off as being independent, she uses her own clinical judgment as to how and when she uses Rebel and when she lets him hang out in the car or in his box. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question about sort of what that looks like as a CODA having access to a working dog. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And you did, you mentioned the toothbrush, toothbrushing with your patient, with your client population, but what other types of skills are you working with um, clients with these dogs at Arcadia Therapy Services? Yeah, you know, it's pretty crazy. Just about any goal can have a application, an application using a working dog. So all the self-care things, um, the dogs are, learn, are taught to tolerate um, a wide range of handling. So um, they can be put in pretty awkward situations physically to be able to work on, let's say, having a kid put on um, their own little jacket onto the border collie and turn him upside down on his belly and button up the jacket on the dog. And um, then wearing the jacket, then we brush the teeth and then get him to pick up his lunchbox and go out the door. So for example, that morning routine, the dog can do the morning routine practice right alongside the kid because he can tolerate awkward handling just fine. Um, and he can pick items up, carry them places. So pretty much any, any goal, because of the foundational skills that the dog has, any goal can have an adaptation. Some of my favorite unexpected uses for the dogs are, of course, the feeding program has, is probably a whole podcast of its own to go over. But one of the, the uses that I find I naturally lend myself to because of just how I'm wired is the psychosocial nature of kids. Um, so many of our kids just struggle with confidence. They struggle with um, grit and being willing to try things over and over. And so I'll often use um, the, the dog's imperfections therapeutically to help them understand, look, if Dandy's struggling with this, Dandy's my border collie, if Dandy's struggling with this, it's understandable that you're struggling with it too, and let's help Dandy, and then maybe Dandy can help you. So I definitely personify, especially, you know, of course, for the younger kids. As kids get older, that sense of magic and imagination and fantasy, unfortunately for all of us, it wanes as we get older. But kids, you know, the line between reality and fantasy is very loose when you're young. And so I leverage that for the kids with Dandy. And they know, I'm sure, if they were really pushed to answer, they know that it's not quite as it's presented, but it delights them and helps them feel included in the process. So like when I'm going into a young kid's house, I'll be like, oh my gosh, I told Dandy last night that he was going to come visit you, and he got so excited, he asked that I bring three colored markers, not just the blue one that's his favorite, but also the green and the yellow, because he's hoping you'll draw a picture that he can put in his crate at home. And so the kid's like all in to work on the grass for the pen, because now he realizes that Dandy wants them to draw him a picture, and then 
you know, Danny can pick up the red marker and hand it to the kid. He can pick up the green marker and hand it to the kid. Pick up the yellow marker and hand it to the brother. And so, like, they really, it's, it's my leveraging of that connection that helps them feel that Dandy is, like, a person and a best friend to them. And I'll often, one of my favorite things to do, because I don't get out in the field enough with, with Dandy, with all the other things I'm doing, but um, one of our CODAs, Shelby, who I dearly love, she um, has helped to develop a pen pal relationship between Dandy and one of her kids. So I can't get out to the family very often. They know show quite a bit, so it's just, it's like a 45-minute drive and 50-50 chance the visit will happen. So when she goes, um, she and the mom introduce food, and then before the kid tries it, he takes a picture, sends it to Dandy, and, you know, and it's very formal, so there's letter writing. Like, I feel like it's old-style pen pal. Dear Dandy, comma, you know, here's the blueberries that I'm going to eat. Do you like blueberries, too? Love, Nate. We'll say his name is Nate. And so then if I'm lucky enough to catch it right away, dear Nate, blueberries are awesome. I prefer them with yogurt and some granola crunches. Love, Dandy. And then I'll send a picture of him holding a box of granola cereal, for example. So like that, he, this kid totally eats up. Does he know that the dog is not actually texting him? Yes, but he doesn't care because it makes him feel that he's not alone in this world of trying food that all the adults want him to eat. So it's a very personal, fun dynamic to support. And then, you know, when I saw Wendy, the years that we did the visits directly, she was like an honorary OT herself. She's very athletic, and so she was getting kids to um, – throw a ball when they had never ever figured out how to throw a ball before or they would run around the the um, park looking so awkward because they've never learned how to run in a normal gait pattern but they didn't care because they were happy because they were running with you know the dog on the leash so she really brought a sense of joy and competence in more of the physical realm and then of course that physical once you feel good about your body and how your body can move through space, that does increase your sense of self-efficacy and, and self-confidence. But she often focused on building up that sense of capacity emotionally, indirectly, whereas I approach it more directly. So I think that's one of the fun aspects of this modality, like many others, is it's very conducive to the personality and the interests of the handler, the therapist who's using the dog. Yeah, definitely. I um, just think that they are such a wonderful motivation for the children, it sounds like, just to, just to be involved and want to take part in the therapy. They just encourage them. I do think that you've nailed it. It's, it really is for all of the the different ways that the dog is used, what it really comes down to is motivation, that it just makes the kids want to try that much harder when they know they can um, have that engagement with another species. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're definitely miraculous animals that just provide that kind of encouraging, warm feeling, and they just make you want to do what you didn't think you could do. It's very true. Yeah, it's a great way to summarize it. Okay, um, so on top of Arcadia Therapy Services, 
I know you have a lot of other projects going on. Do you have one right now that is taking all of your passion specifically? Well, I do think that the feeding program using the dogs one day is going to be amazing. It's kind of on hold a little bit um, from scaling it to be more than just what's being used with our current therapy group um, because we have some students from, some doctoral students from Northern Arizona University who are conducting research to, to, um, to determine the necessity of the dogs as a part of our feeding curriculum. So I feel like it will be time to share that program nationally probably in three to five years once that research has been established. So right now the program that is really captivating me is our work skills program. And if we had a broader use of therapists using working dogs, there would be more direct usages of the dogs in this program. Um, but because we're just getting started using dogs um, with therapists' direct caseloads, the dogs are not as much a part of this program, um, but I still think it's super powerful. It's called Impossible Dreams, and it's a work skills program designed for high-functioning autistic kids from the ages of 9 to 14 um, to just develop work skills, um, work ethic, that grit we were talking about, and just actual skills that they can utilize as they mature to become highly employable one day. There's a very daunting statistic out there that I ran into several years ago um, says that if, if you take this, this small subsection of people, which would be um, autistic young adults who go straight from high school right into college and graduate from a regular college within four years, and who want to be employed, so not the ones that want to live in their parents' basement and play video games all day. So if you take that statistic, you're already weeding out the kids that um, aren't able to go to college, cannot graduate in four years, and don't want a job. So of that group of kids who were able to go straight from high school into college, graduate in four years, which, by the way, I was not able to do, and so it's not, um, it's not a small feat, right, to go straight in to, from high school to college, graduate in four years, and desire to be employed. The unemployment rate, not even the underemployment rate, but the unemployment rate for that population is 85%. And that being the passionate worker that I am in my life, I just think that's devastating that, um, you know, the general unemployment rate is 4%. So we're talking 4% versus 85%. And so as much as important as college degrees are and as much as it matters to be academically successful for these kids, the generalization is not automatic, right? Because if they can graduate from college, why can't they get a job? And so my desire through this Impossible Dreams program is to give kids another route for learning that more directly parallels to employability. And so we're just kind of, in, a, in some ways, in the beginning stages of exploring this, but we're also far enough along that we're already looking to work with a woman out of West Virginia who's going to help us package this and market it um, multi-city so that therapy companies like Arcadia 
um, around the around the country, one city at a time, would be able to implement this program. It's basically a 10-week program where the kids work with their therapists, could be teachers in the school district also, but where kids work with professionals to help them get ready for a competition. And the competition is a big to-do. There's, um, you know, a uniform. There's um, etiquette recommendations, there's all sorts of cool things that go along with it, but it's basically like a science fair for like artisan, media technology, um, kind of a science fair style where they present with a board behind them showcasing their work. Um, and then the evening ends with a culinary competition, which is kind of like a Master Chef Junior or Chop Junior um, with less innovation required. They can follow recipes rather than have to create their own on the spot. But it's a super cool, fairly simple curriculum, but that's super rich, I think, in, in preparing students to be amazing as adult workers one day and gives us therapists um, something bigger than just the therapy session to work toward. So you've got that those ten weeks to accomplish something really big, and you get um, you kind of get kind of sucked into the effort of it all, and you worry about it. You try to get the supplies to help out the family if need be, and you um, you go on a Saturday to their house to make sure their their science board is ready for presenting, and then you're just so proud of them when you see how hard they work. Um, and there's three competitions a year, so if a kid were to be in that program for as many for as long as 10 years that would be 30 opportunities that they have to be very brave and stand in front of a panel of judges and get good at communicating um, how they accomplished the work that they set out to do so that's the one that I think is captivating me the most right now in terms of its readiness for innovation and sharing with other other cities um, but the dogs are always near and dear to my heart because um, I, I spent six long years learning how to live and work among dogs and understand them and I feel like pairing the dogs with my innovative nature that these dogs will be able to go places and do things over the next 10 to 20 years that at this point we can't even imagine because you share a dog with a therapist um, who has a mission and a purpose to serve a particular population and the sky's the limit as to what they can do with their dog. So it's going to be really fun I think over the years to see um, where the dogs go and what they, how they help advance our profession. Yeah, absolutely, and just what you were just speaking on before, um, I just really find that very interesting with anything to do with occupational therapy and autism, intellectual disorders, and mental illnesses, and helping that kind of population find careers and retain those careers. I feel like that is um, just not as typical yeah, it's pretty non-traditional, isn't it? Yes, yes, that's the word I was looking for, non-traditional. It really is. I like that area a lot and just think that it is something that should be more recognized. It's true. I think the, the occupational therapy brain really is, through schooling, is nurtured to be very different than any other setting or any other specialty or any other... Um, I always admire 
speech therapists for their level of knowledge and precision about a fairly small part of the body when you think about um, the swallow mechanisms and the speech language, the speech mechanisms of the mouth and tongue and pharynx and um, lungs and, and um, to have an advanced degree specializing in, to me, such a, a important and specific part of the body and part of life is amazing. Like I could never be that detailed of a learner. And then when I think about the physical therapists and how they are so dedicated all those years to study muscles and again a fairly precise part of life that obviously affects everything we do but yet that's, that's their brain when they go to see a client they're seeing that person as a body moving through space maybe connected to a soul and a spirit. But the, the job of the occupational therapist is to look at that person and kind of almost see everything simultaneously, which I think is a tall order. Um, it fits my global personality quite nicely because like I said, I don't think I could imagine having the depth of attention span for learning the precision that is expected of speech and um, physical therapy. But I think that that OTs need to be relied upon to value that total picture and to see the mental health challenges of caregivers and to take that time in the stroke patient's room and to, to look at that, that wife and say, how tired are you and is there anything you want to talk about today related or unrelated to your husband who's going through all of this? And um, nobody else is expected to see um, everything in the same way that I think occupational therapists should be expected because that's our unique contribution is that holistic measure and so Morgan to reiterate what you were saying about the mental health and employability and all of that like you not only do you have to see everything about that person in their current environment but you have to imagine you have to kind of fast forward that person's life to 10 15 years down the pike and try to imagine what their challenges are going to be based on the patterns you see now and that I would say is more true for like our setting where we are long term we're not just seeing a client for a couple weeks in an acute care setting we're with these families sometimes for five six eight years so um, obviously our commitment to, to what their future looks like needs to be deeper when we're involved over a longer period of time. But it's just it's just a really cool way, unique way in which occupational therapy can contribute to a larger medical team. And so I do like being that more unique um, example that students can look at and say, all right, well, I may not want my life to look just like hers, but I certainly like this or that because the more creative and out-of-the-box OT can be, the, the deeper opportunity we have to change lives. Yeah, definitely. And that creativity also just like works so well with the other disciplines as well. So I think we all work well together, like the PT and the SLP and the OT and the CODAs. It's just... It's a good really mix. Cool. It really is. And then you get into the, the really medical 
settings and then you get the respiratory therapist and you get the neurologist and the yeah. psychologist and the neuropsychologist and the you know all these just really cool specialties and sometimes I think we feel a little as OTs at least I do in those settings sometimes I feel a little um, underwhelming in terms of my realm of specialty but then I just realized that my job is just to see everything and that that is a really special, unique piece of the equation and that if we can be relied upon to catch things that other people are missing um, as the patients prepare to go home or as the kids prepare to graduate from high school or, um, you know, as the family of a cancer patient prepare to live life without that person in their in their current day-to-day -day reality. Like, we have to be relied upon to see things that others don't because we are, we do have that global, global background in our education. So, I love supporting OT students because you guys are in the thick of setting up your future and it's a really cool place to be. It's really nice that you, you put your time into us because you show us like all the places we can go in the future. Yeah, it's kind of like the sky's the limit. It's really exciting. Yeah. It is exciting. I can't wait. Yeah. Well, thank you for chatting with us tonight. We definitely You're learned welcome. a lot about what you do and about the dogs. Is there anything yes. else you'd want to leave us with or wrap well, up? Well, I just think it'll be fun to see where this podcast goes and where each of you go in your careers. And I would be happy to stay in touch with people um, if there's a way to give people my email or my phone number. We can certainly do that. And if this podcast reaches anyone who's interested in the things we've talked about and want to connect with me, I'd be more than happy to, to have a conversation. For sure. We'll put your information um, with the podcast so people can reach out. Perfect. Well, thank you, Carly, and thank you, Morgan. It was really a privilege to be uh, one of your guests in this new venture, and I wish you guys the best. Thank, thank you. you. I appreciate it. Have a great night. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney, and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!